Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 142 of the Ad Nauseam podcast, where you take it in and keep it down. My name, as always, is Dr. David C., as in curmudgeon Noe. Hmm. I am here in the Vomitorium, Vomitorium South, uh, the basement of the uh, RHB bookstore, with my good friend and fantastic co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T., as in... Um... Timely? Timely Winkle. Yeah. Jeff, how are you? <laughs> I like to be punctual. Yeah, all yeah, right. As best I can. You're on Lombardi time. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, I'm doing I'm doing well, except, except for that lousy smart weather. Oh, don't even start. I, okay, sh- I shouldn't even go there. Well, we were going to turn over a new leaf <laughs> we, this year. That's right, right. That's right. But man, that pile of snow came that's in this tough. morning after we had those a couple of weeks of nice, uh, uh, kind of warmer than average right. temps. And so, but uh, I knew it was coming though. I, I right. woke up this morning, I looked up my window and I thought, what is that? Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Crazy. And trying to drive in the city this morning. Right. Drop my kids off. Oh, it took forever. Yes. Ever, but I'm over it. But we love it. We love it. Okay. Right. <laughs> so we have some guests on the program today from Hope College nearby. Now, they get more snow out there, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that uh, the the dreaded lake effect. That's correct. That's right. Yep. Has there ever been a band named Lake Effect? There should be. There should be. Yeah. So this will be a Doctors Ann Larson and Steve Mayulo. They'll be joining us in just a moment. Uh, but before, and they're going to be talking about Anna Maria von Skurman. Yes. Um, they'll tell us how to pronounce all these things. These I hope so. Dutch and German words. So maybe we should stay away from uh, probably it before they get on uh, the, uh, <laughs> the air. Yeah. You didn't ask how I'm doing, Jeff. Oh, how are you doing, Dave? Great. Right, okay, let's move on. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so we don't have an actual shout out today, but we have uh, something from our correspondent down under. Oh, yeah. Ron. Ron. Ron Denholm. Yes, yep. Ron Denholm. Ron rides again, we could call this segment. <laughs> So Ron made contact with us, first contact, uh, Friday, February 9 at 11.04 p.m. And this is what he had to say, Jeff. He says, uh, hi, Dave and Jeff. It's that guy from Down Under who just listened to your eye-opening John 1 verse 1 exploration. In one online Latin dictionary, logos and verbum are given identical meanings. Hold on. What? Hold on. What? So he listened to the episode. Yes. He went to some online Latin dictionary. Right. He put in the words logos and verbum and he got back... Yeah, it's the same. It's the same. Yeah. Right, exactly. Must have been disappointing for Ron. I, I don't think he was too happy about A it. A moment of chagrin. Right. Carry on. Yeah, so he, he, he uh, continues. Just goes to show how the Greek through, uh, through Latin has lost its potency. And as you have said, that's why we need pastors to unwrap the Bible. And as you also said, many have struggled with logos in translation. All right. And how, okay. you, want, you want to pick it up there? Yeah, he says, how about this from the J.B. Phillips New Testament? So this is the translation of John 1.1. Okay. Quote, at the beginning... God expressed himself. <laughs> is this a is this a legit translation? Oh, well, I mean, legit. I mean, is that well, what I mean, it really says? I mean, it, I have never heard of the J.B. Phillips. Oh yeah, Jesus. okay. Oh yeah, there are hundreds of English translations and paraphrases and so forth. Well, I just saw this translation. I, I wondered if it was Ron was. Uh, oh no, was Ron didn't make this up. This okay. is the real deal. Okay. At the beginning, God expressed himself. Right. At the beginning. Yeah. Okay. Not All in right. the beginning, but at the beginning. Right. It's All a right. nice. It's a nice effort, to, I guess, to get. Uh, I'll log us in, but that's all I can say. It's right. A, it's an effort. And I see from his parentheses, this apparently reminded him of, of the Madonna song, Express Yourself. 
That's not original Ron. That's not? Oh. That, I, that's what it reminded me I of. I gotcha. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Okay. Apologies to Ron. Yeah. But, uh, so it's a, it's a little too low. Yeah. Um, then Ron gives us, quote, these are his words, an extended PS. Jeff? Okay. He writes, as a Latin teacher in junior high school, I have always struggled with giving the students enough solid practical reasons for studying Latin. And now I think I may have come up with a winner. My initial brief on taking the job was to improve students' uh, English. And so I went back to that idea and have created an alphabetical list of 1,464 unchanged Latin words people use today in speaking, reading, and writing English. Now, hold on. Yeah. Ron is uh, blessed with amazing industry. Yes. 1,464 unchanged Latin words. Right. Where did he find time to put that together? I, don't, I, I think I find it so interesting that he, I mean, he could have said, I found, you know, around 1,500 words, yeah. but this is very precise. It is he precise. Has, he has a defined list. That's correct. Yeah. Do you think we'll ever get to that many episodes? Oh, I, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, right. We'll make it. Yeah, no problem. Keep yeah. going. All right. Um, so this uh, is where the spelling is identical to the Latin, but of course, many meanings will be different. Mm -hmm. You want to pick it up there? Sure. Ron says, my students are absolute novices, but they are realizing that they know more Latin than they thought. Each week, students create a paragraph with eight or more words from the list. Week one, A words. Week two, B words, and so on. This seems like a clever assignment, yeah. Ron. Nice job. Uh, he continues, this is taught alongside the normal Latin course. The confidence it has already built is now mixed with relevance. Oh, that's always a good combination. Yes. How about this creation from one student? Jeff, you want to read this? Yep. Uh, the Bible messenger was a brute with large biceps, spreading the beautiful word to others. <laughs> Does Ron mean this to be funny? <laughs> I, uh, I don't know, but it I, is. I don't know. Yeah. After a long day, the very tired priest entered a bar to get a drink, with a bartender accidentally giving the worn-out man a bonus beer. Drinking it, it happened to be extremely bile in taste, as he glanced at the bartender with a suspicious look. It later enraged the angered priest, jumping over the table to beat the bartender with a bat, sending him to the hospital with a broken bone. Oh, that's a rough ending. <laughs> it's a rough ending. Wow. <laughs> so, so this is a this is from one of his students. Yes. Okay. Put together this composition, man. I guess it's a mixture of confidence and irrelevance. I have to say, uh, with all due slights to those who live down under, isn't this kind of your picture of Australia? <laughs> What, drunken brawls? Right. People jumping over <laughs> bars with baseball bats. Right. Right. Yeah. It's Foster's, right? Is that American beer that masquerades as a uh, right. Australian one? That's right. That's mm. right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So thanks to Ron for furthering Australian yeah. stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> so what can we say, Ron, except thank you for listening. Yeah. Uh, we really appreciate it. And you might be the first individual to get two shout outs of sorts. Yes. So yeah. keep them coming. Keep them coming. We'd love to hear it. Yes. Thanks, Ron. All right, Dave. So we're doing an interview today. Yes. And what is this all about? Well, we're going to talk about this uh, very famous Dutch woman, Anna Maria van Schoerman, 1607 to 1678. So she lived for 71 years, right in the, the thick of the 17th century. And I'm reading from the blurb of the book we'll be using, written by our uh, guests. Anna Maria van Schoerman was widely regarded throughout the 17th century and well into the 18th as the most erudite woman in Europe. She was active as the Star of Utrecht in a network of learning that included the most renowned scholars of her time. This volume presents in translation a remarkable run of her correspondence covering almost four decades of her life hmm. from 1631 to 1669, ending just a month before she joined the Labadists. Largely unpublished, these manuscript letters and poems to and from her mentor and other members of her circle show how deeply engaged and respected she was in the traditionally male Latin world of the Republic of Letters and her skill 
in navigating its various opportunities and challenges. This sounds fascinating. Yes, it's yep. going to be excellent. Yeah. Uh, I want to read just a little bit more here, if I could, uh, which is from page 24 of the book before we welcome the guests. Uh, is that all right, Jeff? Yes, let's do it. Okay. The title of the book is Letters and Poems to and from Her Mentor and Other Members of Her Circle. This is uh, published, the Toronto Series 2021. Here's the quote. A selection of von Squirman's correspondence during the 1630s and 1640s in Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and French with references in Arabic and Syriac, was published in 1648 in Leiden. Once again, Elsevier, that's her uh, publisher, published her work, but with a major difference. Von Schoerman exercised some control over the print text. More than any of her previous publications, the Opuscula, that's the name of the work, affirmed her authoritative standing in the Republic of Letters. It is a typical humanist letter book, in an elegant typographic print with a striking frontispiece, von Schoerman's engraved 1640 self-portrait in an oval frame, and comprises two treatises, De Vitae Termino, which means uh, the goal of life, and Dissertatio Logica, uh, a rational dissertation. Latin, Greek, and Hebrew letters, Latin poems, poemata, and French letters. It closes with tributes, elogia, by numerous colleagues in the Republic of Letters and three French letters written in 1647 and 1648 to Salmasius and his wife, and Mercier hastily added at the last minute. So... Yeah, this is incredible. I mean, one of the things that, that struck me just about this paragraph and, and some of the little reading I did about uh, Von Skorman is um, her facility with language. Polymath. Polymath. Polyglot. Yeah. Yes, really unbelievable and right. i had the chance to read uh probably should say this now so that i'm not interrupting the guests yeah i had the chance to read a um early 20th century biography by a, a woman named una birch and um it was pretty good i got it at the heckman library at calvin uh, near the end it wandered a lot into the labadist controversy mm -hmm. which i'm not that interested in <clears throat> but in the early stages talking about von Squirman's biography she was an incredible artist. Yeah. She could embroider and paint and watercolors, part of those uh, Dutch masters at the time. Right, right, right. She also um, did something uh, etching glass with a diamond. Yeah, I was reading about that too. Which sounds really uncomfortable on the ears right. and painful. <laughs> exactly. But it's apparently... Nails a, on a chalkboard. Exactly. Right. A tremendously difficult um, medium to master. And she was good at all these things. All these things. And yes, and from a very early age, yes. I, I, I was reading that she was doing like... like uh, um, uh, like paper cuttings, right? Uh, when she was uh, like four years old, yes, and and people were were just were just blown away by her skill. That's correct. Which yeah. is a reminder that if you have small children, hide the scissors. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And on that note, uh, let's welcome Anne and Steve to the show. All right. Well, Anne and Steve, welcome to the show. We're so glad that you had a chance to join us today. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this. Uh, when Dave, uh, I think you you were you you stumbled on this topic. Uh, yes. How did you come across the the topic? Uh, right. Well, uh, I was uh, translating from some Samuel Rutherford, that's right. and a guy named uh, Matthew Nethan, another Dutchman, dedicated the work to the woman he called the Minerva of Utrecht. Yeah. So then I had to go find out who is this. <laughs> yes. And so when he, uh, uh, Dave was just talking to me a little bit about this, and this was someone that I had never heard of, and it just got more and more fascinating uh, the more I heard about it. So we're really excited for you guys to tell us uh, uh, about your work and this long project that you guys have been working on. Yeah, and we'd like to start with uh, having each of you, if you don't mind, give just the, the shortest biography of who you are and how you got interested in this topic uh, so that our, our listeners have some idea of uh, whom they're listening to. And maybe, Anne, you could go first, please. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. I'm very appreciative of this uh, occasion. So I first heard about von Skirman from Joyce Irwin at a lecture that she gave. 
Um, Joyce at that time was working on her edition and translation of Von Skirman's Latin Disputation and her letters on whether a Christian woman should be educated. And uh, she later published that for the series, The Other Voice in Early Modern Europe. And at the time, I was working on learned women uh, from Renaissance France who entered the International Republic of Letters. And so when a colleague invited me to do a critical edition of a learned woman for a series that she was um, uh, directing at the time, I proposed uh, doing um, an edition of von Skirman's letters uh, on the education of women that had been translated into French uh, by a contemporary of hers in 1646. And so I set to work only to find out that someone else had produced for the same editor in Paris an edition of von Skirman's French letters. So I decided to write instead an intellectual biography of her. And I'm so glad that I did that because it turned out to be an extraordinary experience for me. It got me completely deeply into her life, into her works, into her philosophy, into her theology. And so um, I've been working on her for the past 20 years. Okay. And you are, thank you so much. And you are an emerita professor uh, from Hope College, right? In Holland, Michigan? Exactly. And your appointment was in, forgive me, is it in French? It was in French. And um, I chaired the French section. Uh, for many years. Um, mm-hmm. I was totally involved in teaching French, but I also had my second life in research and writing. Uh, so I, I kept up. I did critical editions of um, a, an incredible a mother-daughter pair um, team, um, a 16th century uh, Poitiers. But then I also did a lot of research on other women. But there we go. Excellent. Fantastic. And uh, Steve, how about you? Um, and we should say, just for the audience, Steve is the dean, I learned, of Hope College. So for him to spare a little time for us, this is uh, amazing. Because Jeff, what does he get, about 1500 an hour? Yeah. Something like that? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> uh, yes, that's right. Um, I So uh, I came to Hope College in 2010 uh, to revive a classics program that was languishing after the death of a beloved uh, classicist named, named John Quinn. Mm-hmm. Uh, who I think did some translating for Anne at at some point, and he was such a good translator. I've had the opportunity to look at some of his translations of these and and sit in awe of his work. Um, but you know, when I arrived, Anne came to me and asked me to translate uh, some some letters for her that she was working on for this book, which is now, uh, you know, the standard book or one of the standard books on, on Von Skirman. I mean, and really is, uh, the, you know, an internationally recognized scholar on Von, on Von mm-hmm. Skirman. Uh, and, and I read the Latin and I was just really interested in reading the Latin. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting Latin and it was difficult Latin and challenging Latin. And and I don't know if you 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 gave me a few letters to read and and at one point pretty early on I said you know these haven't been translated before and she said no they they haven't been translated before they were the we were reading from her autograph letters like the actual right. and writing wow boy I never get to do that classicists never get to do that it's right. always right. I'm actually reading the document and I said to her let's do an addition of these because I think they're really interesting and and what Anne was saying is as we were translating and she said. 
no one's ever saw this before. Mm. No one's ever seen this before. This would change the view. And I said, well, then we should do these and we should, we should make them publicly available. Um, and so that's how the, that's how the edition really was, was born. And I was introduced to Von Skirman by Anne. Right. Time when I needed to in my scholarship, you know, I, I had written some things on Plato and was trying to think about what I was going to do um, and realized I don't really have a whole lot new to say about Homer or Virgil or Plato. I have things to say, but really, I don't know that it's groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. And I had published a, an article on Plato that maybe had been read by a dozen people. And I, <laughs> I, I wanted to really make a contribution to something new and exciting. And there's all these materials that are available, these texts that that were written in Latin that just haven't been translated or read before. And and so that's what excited me about the opportunity to, to read and translate things that no one has ever seen before. Thank you so much, Steve. So if we could start as a uh, like a jumping off point, you mentioned the beauty of her Latin, the quality of her Latin. That's something that, I mean, I know very little about her, but I, I can recognize that too. So I want to go to page 87 of the book and just read you a quote and then have you both interact with it a little bit and help us understand a little bit uh, more about our star here. So it says, uh, Von Skurman tells us in her autobiography how she came to learn Latin. That she feels the need to explain this suggests just how unusual it was for her to have studied it, to have studied, let alone written in Latin. Generally speaking, French was the language of the cultured woman, with Latin reserved for men aspiring to politics or the clergy. According to her story, when she was 11 and her brothers were 13 and 15, she overheard a lesson her father was giving her brothers in Latin. Her father had asked a question that, as luck would have it, her brothers could not answer. Despite her younger age and her fairer sex, von Skurman blurted out the correct answer, and her father then saw that his daughter had a special aptitude for this difficult language. What a great story. Yeah, that story is told in the Eucleria, which is her spiritual autobiography. Um, and it's been pointed to a number of times by scholars of von Skirman, uh, especially Peter von Beek has has this in, in her in her book on on von Skirman. But um, it's something that 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 struck me because her relationship with her father seemed to grow around this around Latin. There were stories about him walking through uh, you know the, the gardens and reading Seneca together and and. Seneca was a beloved author for her, I think, uh, for that reason. But you, you see that her Latin, the skills of her Latin are, they're very rhetorical. And, and when, when compared with some of the other authors that we've looked at, it, it's something that was appreciated by her contemporaries. And I'm sure you have more that you want to say about this. Right. I think one has to also remember that she grew up in what was called an academic household. Okay. Uh, many of the learned women of the period, women in Italy, for instance, in England and other countries, had a father, humanist, one who was highly educated, initiate their daughters. One thinks of Thomas More, for instance, and his daughters. Um, and of course, one thinks of Erasmus uh, frequenting the uh, household of More and being an utter amazement at the ability of these women to speak Latin. So you have to have the father figure who is central to the uh, advancement of the daughter. Um, so I also want to say that when her father caught her correcting uh, her brothers, she already knew Latin. It's hmm. very interesting that they had the, the, the brothers, uh, there was three brothers, one of them died when he was very young, 
and von Sturman were educated by a, pre- a preceptor who was hired by the family because they were nobility. Um, she had attended for two years, a French, uh, no, for two months, a French school, and she was immediately pulled out because her parents, who were extremely pious and very concerned about the morals of their daughter, did not want her to be infected by the environment around her. They wanted to keep her the purity of her faith. So she grew up alongside her brothers. She knew Latin, and she, I think, also was introduced to Greek before the father caught on. Okay. Hmm. And so um, is it is it just that she uh, was a genius? Were her brothers kind of dunderheads, or is it a combination of things? No. Uh, she, she was definitely a genius for languages. Uh, her brothers were very uh, also talented. They died young, though. The only hmm. brother who remained was the one who sponsored her. Right. And uh, introduced her to various professors because he studied in the Netherlands. Mm. Um, so she, he was her key sponsor. Okay. So as we're moving through her, thank you, as we're moving through her biography a little bit, I understand that her father died when she was 16. Is that correct? And that must have been a, a really monumental change in her life. Right. Uh, monumental in the sense that um, her father on his deathbed made her promise never to marry. Oh, something like this, that fact. To extricate herself from the corrupt bonds of marriage Mm. on two grounds. First of all, he knew of her extraordinary ability to study and Mm. and to become learned. She had already been noted uh, as a 12-year-old, 13, 14-year-old by her own contemporaries for her remarkable knowledge and learning. The second thing is he did not want, as a nobleman, in a city like Utrecht that was was dominated by a Catholic nobility to marry into a Catholic family. Hmm. So again, you have to think of his keeping her reformed. Uh, sorry, Steve, I know Steve Milo is a Catholic, but um, he wanted the family to be rooted and to keep their faith because right. they came from a persecuted minority um, in their own, you know, in Antwerp, they had to flee. Uh, from being burned at the stake, and then they had to flee from Cologne as well, and they finally came to the Netherlands. I wonder if you could talk a, a bit more, just to kind of put this in a larger context about um, uh, about uh, Lynn Scrimmon's family and you know the kind the kind of education you know that her brothers would have would have had. Um, in, in how how common was that? I mean, they were they were upper class. I mean, was the kind of education that would have been readily available for her brothers been? a comparatively rare one when you look at kind of the population of the Netherlands at the time. I'm just, I'm trying to understand kind of, you know, so, uh, I mean, the, you know, Van Skurman's, um, you know, facility with languages and her own learnedness is extraordinary, but I, I wonder if you could kind of put that in a larger context of, of kind of what was, who was getting that kind of education at the time? Right. So um, it was very common for sons of the nobility. I mean, uh, of course the nobility in the, in, in the Netherlands was, was, very minor compared to France, for instance, or England. Uh, it was a middle class, predominantly uh, dominated society. But the, the people like the, the von Skirmans, uh had the funds, had the money to hire uh, the, the preceptors for uh, their daughter and for their, for their sons. So this is fairly common. What is uncommon, however, is what happened uh, later on in von Skirman's life. And that's when she reached her 20s. Uh, that's where the von Skirman, the star at Utrecht, really, really uh, develops. And um, uh, because of her being initiated and invited to become the first woman to study in a university. That's a whole other story right there. 
Mm. Uh, which 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 explains uh, the uh, the fact that she got to know so many languages. If we could um, move along to um, page one hundred and seven, still in this uh, really extraordinary introduction. So I'm one of those persons who, when he reads a book, I read the whole introduction and the preface and the acknowledgments. <laughs> and sometimes it's not always worth it, frankly. Uh, but this book, it's definitely worth it. Um, so uh, page one hundred and seven, I was very impressed with. Uh, von Skurman's reception in different places. So her reception in England, uh, and maybe we could have Steve read for us just the, the first part of that. I mean, I don't know why I was reading it because we have the authors right here. It sounds so much better in the author's voice. Yeah, yeah. English commentators focused on her pi- piety, artistic talents, and learning, while English women tried to follow her lead. At mid-century, notes David Norbrook, von Skurman was invoked as a champion of Civil War female prophets, such as Mary Carey, supporter of the Fifth Monarchists. The Puritan Hugh Peters, in his preface to Carey's The Little Horn's Doom and Downfall, phrased her as the glory of the sex in Holland and a close fit for Carey. Sir Edward Lee, a parliamentary colleague of Sir uh, Sidman's Dews, dedicated his treatise, The Saint's Encouragement in Evil Times, to one of Dews' daughters, not uh, noting that she was as well-grounded in Latin as von Skirman, that mirror of learning for the female sex. John Evelyn in his Scriptura, or the history and art of calcography and engraving with copper, noted that von Skirman was a prodigy of her sex in the art of engraving. William Walsh, Walsh's A Dialogue Concerning Women, Being a Defense of the Sex, written into Eugenia, mentioned von Skirman's debate with Rivet on women's learning printed in her works in Latin, making reference to her languages, skill with poetry, painting, and all the all the philosophies. He stated that she was indeed a library herself. The greatest divines of her time were proud of her judgment in her own in their own profession. Mm. That's extraordinary. So many of these nicknames that she has, and all of them uh, are these sobriquets, all of them so flattering, right? Well-grounded in Latin, the mirror of learning, the tenth muse, and so on and so forth. Uh, was it really extraordinary for men of the time uh, to recognize the superiority of um, a woman in you know their own particular arena, you might say? Um, well, yes. In her case, yes, absolutely. Um, lot, uh, Steve has already said that she was an exceptional Latinist. Uh, with a, right. r- a rare command for a woman at the time of, of classical Ciceronian Latin. Um, but you have to remember that she also studied a dozen other languages, including Koine Greek, Biblical and Rabbinical Hebrew, Arabic, Syriac, Chaldaic or Aramaic, that she studied under her main professor at the uh, University of Utrecht by the name of Hesperd Vucius. Mm-hmm. Um, she also, on her own, studied Samaritan, Persian, and Ethiopian. She even wrote an Ethiopian Latin grammar, which has uh. since been lost. Uh. Uh, she was also proficient, of course, in the modern languages, but that was common for a woman of right. the time. French, she wrote so beautifully that uh, the key prosaist in Paris at the time complimented her on her French. She knew German, of course. She was born in Cologne. She knew Italian. She spoke it fluently to people who visited her. She knew Dutch, of course, and possibly English. Mm. Um, 
Three non-Dutch contemporaries of hers also who visited her stated that she knew Spanish, but there's no written proof of that coming from mm. her. And finally, to, 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 uh, to crown this all, she tried to decipher Asian languages, hmm. Chinese, Siamese, Japanese. Uh, we know that the reform minister, Andreas Colvius, had sent her samples of these scripts, requesting that she hand copy them for him because she was one of the top five women calligraphers in the Netherlands at that time. Hmm. He was giving her the originals so that she would do that for him and hand copy them for them. So this was completely unusual. I mean, no right. one ever, ever did as many languages as she did. And probably few men, frankly. I mean, I've studied some of the luminaries of this time. Um, most of them max out at four to five languages, but uh, seven, eight, nine, that's extraordinary. Yeah. Queen Christina knew something like six, five, six, seven languages. That was that was, you know, for Queen Christina, she was the top, of course, of the ladder. Um, yeah, but you're right. I was just going to say that, you know, there, in, included in our volume here, we have some conversations between Caspar Barlius and Constantine Huygens, where uh, they are, you know, frankly, they're they're calling her a freak of nature, right, for being able mm. to do these things, and and that she couldn't possibly really be a woman, that she has to be some kind of, you know. She's really a man, but, you know, in, in men's because no woman could ever be capable of this sort of thing. But uh -huh. at the same time is that they're they're wanting to to possess her, you know, marry her. Right. And, and who right. had intercourse with her first in this kind of overly sexualized language? All of that is very complicated because they are, hmm. I think, quite um, taken with her, but also intimidated. Would you say, Anne? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, they were extremely intimidated by her, and and they tried to. Oh, they played games with her. There's just no no doubt about it. But she was just as able to 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 come back to them with wit, uh, wonderful wit with Huygens. Right. Now she was a real match for him. Mm, if you read right. some of her poetry with him, her, yeah. So so the fact that she took that vow of, of celibacy or virginity to her father at age sixteen. Um, provided, I guess, grist for the mill for the rest of her life as she interacted with these famous men. Absolutely. But, uh, but she was nobility. I mean, she had to marry. All women had to marry, but especially right. nobility. And as it is, none of her brothers ever married. Mm. So, I mean, that family line ended, wow. uh, which was extremely unusual for that time. Yeah. Before we uh, go to the break here, which is coming up pretty soon, uh, you mentioned Anne... Um, Von Skurman's work as a calligraphist or a calligrapher, perhaps it is. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, one or both of you, her um, legendary artistic talent in so many different fields, because that comes across very clearly as well in the introduction. Yeah. Steve, you want to say something about that? Yeah, sure. There are all of these. Well, I mean, look, we'll just start with this, that her handwriting, even in these letters is extraordinary. And it's part of you know, it's part of the experience of, of, of reading the, the text that we got to enjoy, which was sort of just reading how carefully uh, her, handwriting, uh, her handwriting works. And in fact, uh, it was Huygens who kept pestering her for a sampling of her ability to write all of these different scripts for his curiosity cabinet, kept mm. pestering her for it. Um, and, and there are a number of, of texts that we see here in this, in this group uh, in, in these in these letters, where she's talking about 
self-portraits and she's talking about her engravings and she's talking about sort of her wax, her work with wax. And so it's, it's all throughout this because she was well known uh, uh, for these, for these artistic skills. Right. She was invited to become a member of the St. Lucas Guild in 1643, which was a great honor. Um, she did something like 20 portraits, self-portraits, uh, miniature self-portraits uh, during the 1630s. And she would send self-portraits of herself to her correspondents. And again, mm-hmm. this was something that was common at the time. Learned men had galleries of portraits in their libraries so that they could remember each one of the correspondence that they had. Is this uh, like a selfie? Is that how we should consider? Well, that would be the selfie. Is she sending that, selfies to people? She was sending Act- selfies. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. quite a, and, and those 20 different um, selfies of her have been preserved. They're mm-hmm. all uh, at the museum in Franeker in Friesland. Uh, the Anna Maria collection there is absolutely wonderful. And I really uh, recommend that anybody going to the Netherlands just drive north, go to Franeker, and visit that collection, which mm-hmm. uh, when I visited in 2012 was way up in the attic. But in the last 10 years, Von Skirman has finally become uh, much better known, and the collection is now on the ground floor of the museum. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful collection. It was preserved and uh, handed down by one of her descendants in the 18th century. I'm, I'm wondering if um, you know, these, these physical arts that she was so skilled in, if, if that would have also been seen in the day as kind of boundary crossing as well. I mean, was like calligraphy engraving, I know she, she, she was uh, uh, paper cutting. Would that, would the, were these arts that were also uh, you know, gendered in a way in that um, it, was, it was typically men who did the calligraphy or, or, or were some of her arts considered kind of more domestic arts? Could uh, one of you comment on that? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, for a woman of her, uh, of the nobility and um, of her class, it was common to educate women in the arts. So uh, what she was doing was not unusual. Uh, many women of her status were also involved in needlework, for instance, or in uh, using a diamond to inscribe the, the cups uh, that were used at the time to write adages, for instance. Now, she wrote them in Latin, of course, and then she would give them as gifts. So this was kind of quite common. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. And speaking of giving diamond engraved cups as gifts. Yes, it's time for the break. That's correct. <laughs> this episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing with offices in Indianapolis, Indiana, right in the heartland, and in Cambridge, Massachusetts, have been bringing to a wide audience classics for uh, nigh unto 53 years 53. Now. Yeah. That's right. So, Jeff, what do you think about Hackett? I love Hackett. I love that their volumes are affordable. I love the massive uh, range of, of topics. Uh, if you go to HackettPublishing.com, you'll see that it's not just the classics, although there's a ton of classics mm-hmm. there, but you'll find um, stuff from all over the, the, the various corners of the humanities. And I love that they will engage multiple translators for yes. the same work. Like we've used a Lombardo and what was the other translator for? The Ambrose for Am- Ovid. For Ovid. Yep. Um, just great stuff. Um, and my students love it because it does not kill the pocket. That's correct. Yeah. They have a wide selection of readings from Plato, the CDC Reeve translation of the Republic. They have new works on Aristotle. They have uh, the Greek historians, a very nice anthology uh, of those authors. Uh, really anything you could desire in this particular area, like uh, as well as what you said, 
in a number of other genres. Right. I also love that they've they were with us from pretty much the beginning of this yes. podcast. When we when we contacted them, it was not a tough sell. They no. said you guys in some ways are are doing the same stuff we're That's trying right. to do, keeping right. the flame alive and right. they've stuck so, with us. So we're interested in what you could call the Western canon, right? We're not only interested in that, but we think these are important things to read. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of grousing in the you know the broader culture about cancellation and so forth. Right. And instead of cursing the darkness, right? Why don't you whistle in it and buy some of these books and read them? And, Absolutely. Uh, you can do that with Hackett, and they have uh, they've supported us, so we're we're very grateful for that. And to our listeners for buying products from Hackett. Speaking uh, of which, yes. So uh, do yourself a favor uh, and um, support this humble podcast. Go to HackettPublishing.com. H A C K E T T Publishing. Publishing.com. Find the books you want, put them in the grocery basket, and uh, type in the, the coupon code AN2024. That's correct. It's AN, like ad nauseum, plus the current year. And Dave, that will get them two wonderful things. That's right. It'll get them 20% off their entire order and free shipping. Now, Jeff, were there any other uh, folks that came forward and wanted uh, to sponsor us, but that we declined? Well, I mean, there was that uh, the, the that consortium of river-based uh, book emporium reta- retailers. Oh, you mean rubber? The R B B E R. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. so they they tried, but okay. but we rebuffed. We rebuffed. Right. They, they were trying to get us to pay them. Yes. It, it didn't make any economic sense at all. Right. So right. if you were to go to I don't know Hudson.com yeah. or what are some other famous? There was, there's the, the Danube.org. Danube, right? Yeah. Roan.com. Yeah. Uh, you might find some books, but if you go to Hackett Publishing, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, and use our coupon code, right. 20% off and free shipping, check it out. Yeah. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by the good folks at Ratio Coffee. Hey, listeners, do yourself a favor and go to RatioCoffee.com, because there you will find these incredible machines uh, that will brew your coffee to perfection, That's better right. than you could ever find at any bean barnery, right? Or any, Bagel, bagelry. Right. Bar, bar stooks. Right. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that the, the word bakery has now been turned into a kind of a portmanteau with bagel and people are saying bagelry? Bagelry? Yes. Oh, Those wait. are four consonants that were never intended to be together. No, I don't, I don't like this bagel-ry. at all. Bagelry, it's hard to say. It is. So skip the whole thing. Yes. Make your coffee at home. Right. So do yourself a favor. Check out one of these machines. We've got the ratio eight, which is kind of the... Uh, the granddaddy. That's uh, right. That's the machine that both Dave, you and I have on our counters in our kitchen. It's the aircraft carrier of the fleet, you it might is. say, but it's not going to break your countertop in half. No, it's not. And, but it will be around uh, for, for years. Yeah, maybe uh, longer than you. Exactly. And the six? The six is its younger brother, uh, which is a, also a great machine and uh, a, a bit more affordable. And both machines uh, brew every morning consistently an excellent professional cup of coffee. Indeed. Yeah. Um, and there's the four, Jeff. That's on the way, right? Coming down the line sometime this spring. And so from the Ratio website, I read this. Uh, as easy as pods, but so much better. The question, ever wonder what the convenience of a Keurig really costs? We did too. On average, $33 to $50 per pound, depending on the roaster. For mediocre coffee, brewed with haste and waste at the forefront, into throwaway plastic pods, Says Ratio, we offer a better way. Buy fresh from your local roaster and have the four brew up a cup. The taste will be monumentally better. I'm excited for that to come out. I am too. Right. So for me, some of our listeners who've looked at the six and the eight right. and said, well, you know, I can't, I can't quite do that. It's a little bit too much for me. The four is going to be much uh, in a much more achievable range. Yeah, the uh, sweet spot. So Jeff, what should the listeners do if they want to up their coffee game? They should go to ratiocoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O, and find the machine uh, that they want. Type in the coupon code. And this month it is A-N-C-O-C-O. 
Three Q. Mm-hmm. Was the Q stand for, Dave? The Q, Jeff, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Stands for quiescent. Ooh, quiescent. Quiescent, because there's nothing better than having your coffee brewed this way. Yes. Putting it into a nice thermally uh, insulated mug, sitting yes. down with a good book, and just taking it easy. Excellent. That's quiescent. That's the essence of quiescence. Can I, I say it. that? I love it. Yes you, yes, you may. Okay. Right. So if you do, if you put it in that coupon code, listener, that will get you 15% off your entire order. A-N-C-O-3-Q through the month of February. Please check it out. All right, as we get back into it, uh, Dave, you wanted to look at uh, one of uh, Von Squirman's letters. That's correct. So this is on page 133 of uh, the volume. It's Von Squirman to Rivet. That's a tough one for me to pronounce. Uh, March 1634. And um, maybe, Anne, you could read a little bit of this to us, and then we'll discuss some of the really interesting content, please. Okay, so the lead uh, summary on that is Von Squirman thanks Rivet for dedicating a book to her but expresses trepidation at being cast into the public limelight. Parenthetically, this was something that in her entire life, Von Skirman had to deal with, her astonishing celebrity. Mm. Anybody who was anybody came to Utrecht to visit Anna Maria Von Skirman. Um, She was uh, visited by queens, by princesses, uh, by uh, men of letters, of course, thinkers. um, Descartes, right? Descartes, yeah, and I'll talk about Descartes a little later on. You have a wonderful question about the people she knew and about Descartes in particular. So but if I can just interrupt, which I will, because that's my, you know, bad yeah. tendency. Um, why did she keep sending so many selfies if she didn't want so many visitors? Because this was something that you did in order to become a member of the Republic of Letters. Okay. She was very, very serious about uh, being seen as... Someone who could show that women could make it into the International Republic of Letters. This was part of her agenda uh, to promote not only the education of women, but to um, enable members of the Republic to open their gates, to open the boundaries, to allow more women into discussion with them and conversation with them. I see. Uh, She was very seriously committed to that. It's later that things change for her. We constantly see her in these letters, you know, wanting, uh, wanting entrance into the Republic of Letters, but she can't seem like she wants it too much. Yeah. So she's all like, you know, she's sending them, she's sending the self-portraits and the selfies, which would be an indicator that she wants to be known, but she can't be seen as wanting that thing because that is inappropriate for her sex. And so as you read these letters, particularly in Latin, you see her kind of struggling between these two things, wanting to be part of the Republic of Letters, enjoying the kinds of conversations that she gets to have and the connections that she's getting to have. But she also can't say openly, yes, I want this. Right. Absolutely. Shall I go on reading? Yes, please. Your letter, Reverend Sir, has very much cheered me up. And there is no need to keep on saying how much influence it rightly has over me. But you explained the reason for your silence so judiciously and much more humanely than is fitting for someone as exalted as you, given that you are always so busy. You made me blush right away because of your remarkable kindness. And although you have so many friends, you were still willing to dedicate your book to me and establish publicly such a great monument to the friendship between us. 
However, I fear that you have likened me to unscaled Phaeton in his chariot when you lifted me up on the wings of celebrity and fame. This indeed is a beautiful thing. And then the quotation, what I ask for is not mortal. And, and that's a quotation, of course, from Ovid's Metamorphoses, mm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that wonderful illusion. Um, um, Steve, I'm wondering if you, uh, just kind of a linguistic question, if you could comment. You said uh, early on on the, on the show that you found uh, her, her Latin uh, kind of beautiful and challenging. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, uh, more about that, if, you, if there's, uh, you know, if it was like her Latin reminded you of, 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 of other authors from the time or classical authors, or talk about me just some of the challenges that you faced in translating these letters. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in a lot of ways, sometimes when we translate, uh, we're, we're not always, you know, we, we tra- in translation, it sounds a lot more clear than it often is uh, in the Latin because her Latin can often get tortuous. Is that the right word, Anne? Uh, oh, absolutely. When, absolutely. Uh, she's a fan of the dull and triple and quadruple negative, uh, particularly because she is, you know, she's trying not Again, it's really to her fame. She, she there's this modesty trope, right? She can't come out and say, "I want it." You know, I want it. I'm, I'm so glad that you dedicated this book to me. It means a lot to me. She has to say, and it, it, I, I'm, I'm blushing for this reason. And you know, I, uh, you have so many friends, and you're so busy. I can't believe that you're spending the time to write to me and to think about me. That's what's going on in this letter, right? So she's really, it's thank you for dedicating the book to me. I feel really good about that. But she can't speak directly to it. So it's in this long and torturous way that she gets to this idea because she's trying to protect her, her, um, you know, her feminine modesty. This, this notion of blushing is really important, right? You've made me blush. I blushed right away because of your remarkable kindness. Hmm. So the Latin, the Latin is very complex, lots of subordinate clauses, lots of negatives. Um, and, and, but the words are always so very carefully chosen and the allusions are always right on the money. You know, here alluding to just this moment in Ovid, you know, when Phaethon is going to take over this chariot and we all know how that's going to end. And so she's she's picking this moment because she's going to be, she's in the limelight. She's being right. chosen by Rivet to have her, her name dedicated, which puts her in the limelight, which could lead her to crashing and burning. Right, but she's doing so with this careful allusion to to, to Ovid, which, that has a a negative result, of course. But right. in so doing, she's proving her classical learning. Right, so even though she's saying that you know I don't deserve it and I'm blushing, she's picking just the right moment from classical mythology, just the right line, which actually proves how learned and skilled she is. And right. again. Watching her play this game is astounding to me how mm. how how skilled she is at at doing it, and it's all over these letters. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. So well said. If we skip ahead to page one thirty seven, I wanted to pick up. Um, this is letter number nine, von Skurman to Rive, twenty one November sixteen thirty four, and I guess here she's talking about being the student of uh, Fuzius. Um, and if I remember correctly from the, the Birch biography, it's probably an introduction here too. When she was studying with him, she had to sit in a curtained box in the classroom and yet she was able to listen and participate in the lectures. Can you say more about that, please? Well, uh, 
from what I've seen, and she had to be in, in this like box that had this this lattice kind of I don't know wooden lattice thing uh, because it, the fear was that she would be a distraction to all the men, oh. and so she had to be kept out of sight, right? Because her mere presence could could distract the the men that are in that are in class with her, and and we'll have more to say. Yeah, absolutely. So remember also that she's attending Butch's disputations. And uh, we all know what a disputation was. This goes back to the Middle Ages, right? It's a contest, basically. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a public demonstration of the students' learning and the professor's learning at the time. Uh, now, she was doing, she was following his disputations on theology uh, because he was a minister. Uh, Butchus was a minister. He was the rector of the university. And he was the lead professor of Oriental languages, Mideastern languages, uh, in order to understand the Bible, to apply these languages to the Bible. Um, so she, in effect, was attending his year-long disputations uh, that uh, consisted of some 40 to 50 disputations over that sometimes took 15 months. Um, and um, she attended these, of course, in this, uh, in this cubicle with a lattice grid. And her attendance was so well-known, everybody in the Netherlands knew it, and overseas as well, that Descartes wrote in jest to his um, disciple and his friend at Utrecht, a professor, that he would gleefully rescue him when he was presenting his Cartesian uh, theories. And I'll quote directly what Descartes says, quote, provided that no one knows anything about this, and then I'd be able to remain in the listening area of the cubicle where Mademoiselle de Skirman is accustomed to following the lectures. <laughs> so he, he mocked her, you know, and, uh, I mean, he was mm. doing this in jest, right? But she yeah. was spending months and months and months uh, because she was in love with theology. Yeah. So this is just like Taylor Swift at the Super Bowl in the, <laughs> in the box, but a Taylor Swift who's writing poetry and uh, letters in 12 languages. Uh, that would be the one small difference, right? <laughs> it's just that one. But that kind of, that kind of celebrity, uh, that's incredible. Some of what I was reading is uh, she, one of her correspondence was with, um, I, I'm going to butcher the, the pronunciation, uh, Birgit Thought, a, a Danish, um, uh, there we go. Okay. Yeah. And I was reading that um, one of the things that, that Thought wrote was a, uh, an edition of, of Seneca, and in that edition, she makes an argument uh, why why women should uh, have access to education. And I'm wondering if um, if von Schulman, uh ever took that up specifically. And I'm, I'm specifically wondering that it um, the case that she makes for women's access to education did she ever kind of base it in in classical philosophy, or what did it was it morally from a, the, a theological argument that she made? What was she what was she basing the, the argument on? Okay, uh, maybe I can speak to that. Or uh, uh, Steve, do you want to say a few words before I go ahead? You, you can start, and then I'll add. Okay. Well, in her letters uh, on the education of women and in her disputation, um, she argued uh, that it was women's moral duty to study and make the best of their leisure to avoid idleness and vice. Hmm. Uh, so she's taking on the language of the Christian humanists of the 16th century, uh, like uh, Erasmus, for instance, who wrote on the education of women. Um, and um, so she's taking up a moral argument here. But she's also saying that they need to study in order to understand 
theology dubbed the queen of the sciences at the time. Um, and for that, uh, women, she said, had to study the entire encyclopedia, including, and this is what's so extraordinary, the natural sciences of cosmology, of medicine, of natural philosophy, and law and military science. Mm. These should not be left out uh, on grounds, she says, of the universality of knowledge. And she she cites uh, the, the opening line of Aristotle's metaphysics. Um, All men, humans, uh, desire naturally to know. So that's that's her argument. It's because every human being, including women, this is how she puts it, have this desire, natural desire to know hmm. that they should be allowed the access to the entire encyclopedia taught at the universities. Excellent. Thank you. That's great. Yeah, I'll, I'll say something else is, is you know, her correspondence with Rive about this very topic is interesting because Rive is, they, they almost get into a little spat about this. Wouldn't you say, Anne? Yes, absolutely. Rive, oh, totally. Rive is saying um, maybe some women that's right. Are especially called to it. Exactly. They have this education, but to to argue for it universally, that's a, that's a bridge too far. And we, when you watch uh, von Skirman kind of respond to Rive there, she does soften it a little a little bit. But you know, she still stands by her. She still stands by it. Um, so this is an argument that that or this argument that she's making got her in. In a little bit of hot water, even with 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 her, um, you know, her her sponsor, right? Uh, well, she let me just give you and cite in the original the way she goes on the attack. There's just no other way to put it. And let me read this to you. And this is what she says in our translation. But quote: It is unusually it is usually objected that sewing with the needle and spinning the distaff constitute an ample enough school for women. But those among us women who seek the voice of reason and not of received custom reject this rule. And then she asks this extraordinary question of her, of Rivet. She's, she's head on with him. But what by what law, I ask, have these things become our law? Is it of received custom? Uh, is, it, is it by divine law or human law? And then she concludes, never will they demonstrate that these restrictions by which they force us into line have been prescribed by fate or determined by God. Huh. Wow. Uh, and sounds... then what, what is Cleveland's response? She's absolutely blown away. And again, in our translation, you are exceptionally eloquent and precise in your arguments. So that's right at the beginning of his letter when he comes back to her. And then he's extremely devious. He makes it all about her. <laughs> and so he says, you wanted this education to be for many women so that you might hide in the crowd mm. and have nothing singular attributed to you. Come on, Van Skirman. You are unique. You are be above your sex. Don't give me this argument. Mm-hmm. And then and then he lowers the ax on her. And this is what you, he says, and I, I'm just going to read this in our translation. Forgive me if I were to say that the truth will not follow your words and that even if you should get from me what you want, you would not be able to draw womankind over to your opinion. You will fight on either alone or with very few others, abandoned by 
everyone else whose character or mind do not incline towards such things. Mm. That's his categorical reply to her. Mm. Um, you know, you are assistance women, you are the exception. We are not going to make, we're not going to change anything for, for you because yeah. you, you want that changed. Doesn't uh, seem like a very fair way to argue to me. Well, <laughs> absolutely. And you have to wait until the yeah. revolution, the end of the 18th century for things to change, for things to move. Right. It took a century uh, until women could, you know, be, you know, uh, accede to the university. Right. Ren Skirman was the first. She was the first. Yeah. It does seem that there, um, I mean, there was a, a, albeit small circle of women that she corresponded with, right, that were, that were intellectuals. And so, I mean, Rive seems to be, I mean, at least on some level, completely wrong about that. Like, like saying, like, Vince Kerman, you're the only one. Um, I mean, um, there were others, weren't there? Absolutely, there were others. Um, and I just want to draw attention to, uh, uh, Steve has drawn attention to Peter Van Beek, who is the doyen of Vance Kerman's studies in the Netherlands, who wrote this wonderful book and who has dedicated her life to un- to recovering, recovering the lost letters um, uh, and works of von Um And al- also Carol Powell, who wrote a, a great book called uh, Republic of Women, Rethinking the Republic of Letters in the 17th Century. Hmm. So both of them say that von Skirman was for over four decades at the heart of an international community of female scholars. And these female scholars included people like uh, the Cartesian philosopher, Elizabeth uh, of Bohemia, um, and also in England, a lot of it, women educators in England were profoundly influenced by what von Skirman said and started founding school for girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was in correspondence with German women, uh, the pietist Johanna von Merlo, for instance, and with a French feminist, Marie de Gournay. I mean, one could go on and on. Just yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, in order to be a little bit uh, respectful of your time, I would like to s- skip uh, ahead a little bit, getting closer to the end of the book. I just wanted to comment on page 153, which is her very long uh, letter to Rivet we've been talking about. Uh, she mentions uh, Lady Jane Grey, and I don't think we really have time to to dwell on it, but you all did an excellent job, in my in my opinion, with the translation there. That is really, really nice. You handled that very well. And then if we could skip to page 229 into some of the poetry. Um, two, two poems in particular, and if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, both of these are in elegiac couplets. So the first one, her engraved self-portrait, 1633. Uh, and uh, maybe, maybe, Steve, I could... I could read the Latin and you could read us your translation. Would that be all right? Okay. All right. So uh, this goes, I think, like this. Non anami fastus nec formae gratia suasit, vultus aeter no scupor in aere meos, and then sed si forta rudistilis hic meliora negara tentarem prima ne patiora vica. And uh, you guys did such a wonderful job with this translation. If, if you could share that with us, please. Sure. No arrogance of mine or the grace of my features persuaded me to sculpt my face in everlasting copper. But if perhaps my inexperienced chisel prevented a better outcome, I would be looking for a better one at the first opportunity. 
<laughs> That's wonderful. I have so many more questions. Okay. I'm afraid the question I'm going to ask would lead us into... Uh, well, maybe yeah. we could just talk about this poem for a minute. Okay. And then we, we'll have a little time at the end, I think, for some last minute questions. Okay. Do you, do you have some specific... Well, I just want to know, um, what does this tell us about the constant struggle that you have identified between her desire to join the Republic of Letters by making her exceptional talents known and the, the facade of humility or maybe the real motive for humility that she needs to maintain. Um, it's, it's so fascinating to me. Okay, well, I'll start. Um, this is a very important uh, quartet that was uh, added in, to her engraved self-portrait of 1633. This is the first engraved self-portrait that she did. And she um, sent this to well-known members of the Republic of Letters, including Huygens and many others. And this uh, I interpret as her bid, her starting bid to enter the Republic of Letters by, by doing the self-portrait and writing this. It also turns out that she wrote this at the time that she was writing a um, text in French on the education of women um, that she reserved for Rivet, but this was never published. Uh, she was sort of rehearsing the arguments that she would later take up a few years later in her disputation. Um, and uh, this is a humility trope, in fact, uh, that a lot of male authors also used um, on, on their self-portraits. They, uh, they would talk about the work that they were going to publish. Dear reader, um, in sort of a false humility uh, topos here, uh, they're saying, um, this is my first attempt at uh, reaching you. Uh, please be kind to me, that kind of thing. Um, so uh, she's knowing what she's doing here. Uh, this portrait, I would argue, could have been a frontispiece for her first work that she was writing in French. But later, the, the work became a Latin work. Um, she didn't want to just do it for the ladies, uh, as she says, about this, uh, this short work that she was working on. She decided that she was going to go much bigger. She was going to direct it to male writers, to theologians, to professors, to the university world to allow women to enter. So her stage made, became much bigger as she moved on in the 1630s uh, from the, the 1633 uh, self-portrait. Hmm. Do we want to, thank you, do we want to read one more uh, poem, Jeff, before we wrap things up? Let's do it. Okay, so this is uh, on the, the next page, number 67, October 1634. So again, she would have been 27 years old, I think. Jeff, were you writing poetry like this at age 27? It was, but it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, I'm still not. Anyway, uh, beautiful lines, and then maybe, Steve, you could read those for us. Magnum musa virum sonat ut quagosim quoquates ingenim constans da mihi foiba tuum, astquo jura meum pascit clarescere nomen, cum pro me causam quilatet autoragat. Fantastic. My muse sings of a great man, and so that I might also become an inspired poet. Lend me your talent, my constant Phoebus. But what gives him the right to think he can make my name famous when he pleads his case for me without acknowledging that he was the author? Hmm. Well, there's a sophisticated joke in there that I don't quite get yet. Do you get it, Jeff? I'm, I'm, I'm missing it. Maybe these experts can explain it to us. 
Well, so there's a there's a couple of things that might be going on here, right? So this poem is addressed to uh, Huygens, Constantine Huygens, who I don't know if you've ever uh, read his Latin before. Um, it, he is. I'm just going to say it. His he reminds me of Ovid. If you read too much Ovid, I get when I read too much Ovid, I get frustrated by the cleverness of it. Actually, sometimes, and and Huygens is so clever, he is actually quite impossible okay. to translate. Uh, and I think all of our efforts to translate Huygens, we did a pretty good job, but I was never satisfied okay. with the outcome because I could never quite capture the whole thing. So but, maybe a little bit like Bob Dylan in love with his yeah, muse? Kind it, of. <laughs> it, it, exactly. Um, and so so uh, von Skirman's nickname for Huygens was Phoebus or Apollo. And uh -huh. and the reason is because, of course, Apollo is the god of poetry and the muses and, and all that. So she she calls him Phoebus all the time. And Constans is a play. Constant Phoebus is a, is a play on his name. Constantine, right. right? So um, early on in their in their exchange, von Skirman and Huygens were were constantly exchanging clever lines with one another, right? And so saying, you know, the muse, uh, my muse sings of a great man. We're talking here, of course, of of Constantine Huygens. And if I'm going to write a good poem, von Skirman says, I need your talent because mm -hmm. I don't have it. So we have that kind of um that modesty trope that yeah, right. yeah. that's going that's going on here and the next line what gives him the right to think he can make my name famous again this is an op this she's talking here about uh the way in which her her name is being celebrated by all of these famous poets and all these famous statesmen and of course apollo is the god of the sun who might shine the light on 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 von skirman and she's worried about that and so when he plays his, his, his key case read without acknowledging that he was the author, in other words, he is the one that's drawing attention to me. And I am borrowing from, my poems are in response to his poetry, and I wouldn't be inspired to write these poems were it not for me responding to him. And so, yeah. so that's the joke. But the, the real idea here is that, that she is able, in a very clever poem, mind you, to, to deflect all the attention off of herself and onto yes. Huygens. And that's the clever game she's playing in this particular. Great. That's great, Steve. Um, and not only that, she not only deflects uh, attention to herself, uh, to Huygens, she does it with everybody else. I mean, she, she does it with other male writers who want to pour all of their praise on her. And she just turns it around and throws it back at them. Mm. Uh, it's like a ping pong ball. She just... Uh, plays the same game. Um, and we haven't, of course, reached the end of her life, which was extraordinarily dramatic. And I hope that somebody is going to work, uh, do a biofiction on her uh, yeah. because she has such an eventful life. And we need with the labidists and the absolutely we the need moving to reach, around and we need to reach a, a, a greater public, the reading public and do biofiction. So mm -hmm. I'm waiting for that. <laughs> we need to write that now. Yeah. Uh, because that that end part of her life was is just mind boggling. Yeah. Well, we might if you guys would be willing. We would love to do a, a part two. Absolutely. On this. I, mean, I would love to get in some in there. Um, 
you know, when she, her critique of, of the reform tradition and, and all, all that stuff that's going on at the end of her life would be, would be fascinating. But uh, our question is, anything you would like to say to students and teachers of Latin at all levels? And are there any words of inspiration and advice that you can give for continuing studies? Yeah, well, I'd like to in- encourage um, individuals who are interested in advanced Kermit to consider doing a critical edition of her Latin works. Hmm. Uh, an edition has been done of her French letters. Um, Steve and I uh, recently gave a paper uh, uh, and wrote an article, which has since been published, on translating and editing von Skirman. And one of the key challenges that we kept encountering was the lack of an established edition. Can you imagine working with somebody whose Latin works are manifold, but there's not been any established edition? Right. There's no to little, uh, little to no editorial history uh, of her writings. Um, so we feel that what we've been doing is preparing for that next stage, um, a very capable Latinist to do this. Mm. And the second thing is what I just mentioned, uh, biofiction, um, which would be great because it would allow uh, a, a creative person to enrich our knowledge of history um, and infirm as well the agency and the voice of von Skirman. Mm through doing a, um, a narrative, uh, a, a novel that looks into her time, into right. the way that she lived, the people she frequented. It doesn't have to be, of course, an historical novel. That's different. Right. Okay. Uh, biofiction to reach the wider public. And that's being done increasingly now for early modern women mm. who are, you know, I mean, I could say, you know, Margaret Cavendish, for instance, I mean, there are like eight novels that have been written about her. Um, the time has come for Von Skirman to get right. into that type of narrative. Maybe Madeline Miller and then the movie directed by Ridley Scott. Something like that. <laughs> hey, that yeah. yeah. Great. Hey, did you want to add anything in here? You've made yeah. some excellent contributions during this time. So what I would say here uh, to, to your question about what I'd say to Latin students and teachers, expand the canon. There is so much rich material out there that needs your eyes and your ears and your experience and your ability to read this language that can be a real service mm. to people both within classics and beyond beyond classics you know and also if you want to give students things that are in latin that have not yet been translated so they can't look it up on the internet right there's so much material out there and it's actually a lot of fun to be among the first to read things that have not yet been read and to at least begin a conversation. And that's the way that, that Anne and I thought about this, this edition is that this is, this is the beginning of a, of a conversation. We look, we're confident that all our translations are, are accurate, but we know we didn't get everything right. And sure. it's always hard to be the first person to come to a text because, uh, you know, you're putting yourself out there you don't have right. the, the, you know, you don't, you don't, you're not engaging in this, uh, conversation with other with other scholars so please come to us we we want to begin a conversation not not right. end it and there's so much material out there about which we can start to begin conversations so i encourage everybody to extend to expand beyond cicero and caesar and virgil mm-hmm. not that there's nothing wrong with cicero and caesar and virgil but there's so much more out there that that needs to be read and explored yeah thank so, you so much well i think we should probably say goodbye jeff right yep. and uh Thanks again for your time. Uh, You've been wonderful guests, and we hope you'll come back. Thank you so much for inviting us. We really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Well, Jeff, uh, that wraps it up. Hey, that was great. 
really appreciate um, uh, Steve and Ann coming in yes. and taking time to, to tell us all about this fascinating topic. That's right. And uh, if you are you know, listening and you think, I want to learn more about this famous woman, the star of Utrecht, the Minerva of the Netherlands, check out their book. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff available online. Right. But we have to get out of here, Jeff. And precisely why? Well, wow. Um, I'm, I, I hear some knocking upstairs, but yeah. I'm completely unprepared uh, to tell who it is. It's not the Shed Poet Society this week. Who is it? I think it's the people who sit around, yeah. slice things, butter it, put on the condiments, occasionally toast, yes. sometimes serve with eggs on the side. Oh. You know who I'm talking about. Uh, Sourdough, maybe oh, pretzel. This is the Bread Poet Society. That's correct. <laughs> Man, I love those guys. But the, until I was, I was instructed by my doctor to cut down on carbs. Yes. Now I can't. I, I can't. So did they revoke your membership? They did. They, they, they said you're carbs. out of here. That's right. I tried to show up at a meeting and they, right. they threw me out. Huh. Exactly. Yeah. So do they, do they surround you with one of those little twisty tie things? Yes. Or even worse, the the faux. Uh, what am I thinking of? You know, the faux guitar pick. <laughs> That little plastic thingy? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's a torture device. It's a torture device. You ever right. tried to get that on a, a a bag of bread? No, it's impossible. Impossible. Right. Well, they had no problem when they wrapped me up in a in a in a uh, in a plastic bag, tied that thing to on, the curb. and tossed me to the curb. So yeah. I don't. I I'm going to ignore their knocking because right. I, I got no love for these. So people. you're no longer a member of the Bread Poet Society. Exactly. All right. I, I'm well, out of here. They can just wait. They can just wait. And while we wait, Dave, can you tell us something about the Moss Method? Absolutely. Moss Method for Greek takes you from neophyte to, to erudite. That's correct. So. Uh, four modules, each one 40 uh, lessons in length. This is more than 40 hours of instruction plus six quizzes, two exams, 40 assignments. This is per module. Don't Fantastic. forget. Yes. And so you really have no reason not to learn Greek to a very high level. And you get interaction with me if you want it once per week during the Zoom Moffis hours. My favorite part. Yep. In, the, in the back of the, uh, the Moss textbook, there is a a collection of words telling you what uh, you know what you find in the readings. Guess what we call that? What do you call that? The mossery. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So go to mossmethod.com and you can check out some of my uh, extensive free instruction. All of it uh, self-paced, expert, and accessible. Or you can sign up for the course. Sounds great. And Dave, you also have a method for teaching Latin as well. Yes. This is based on Hans Orberg's Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata. Latin teaches itself. And you can find this at latinperdiem.com slash LLPSI. And when there, uh, be sure to check out my YouTube channel, which now has more than 2,050 free uh, lessons, including some on Anna Maria von Schoorman. I covered a little bit oh, of really? her Latin. Yes. Fantastic. Because yeah. it's very fascinated by it. So for $250, which I think is a great value, you can uh, learn alongside my students as I teach them from the Hans Orberg book. And uh, you can enjoy learning from their mistakes rather than making all of them yourself. And you can rejoice in their victories. Fantastic. So like I like to say, it may not be the best program, but I really am convinced that it's honestly the best value. Combination of price point and the expertise and amount of material. Unbeatable, in my opinion. Excellent. Thanks, Dave. Hey, we got people to thank, as always. Uh, Mishka, our great engineer. It's really, I've always been impressed with her work, but the way that she just makes things coming up, come out so, so clean yes. and so precise week after week. And, and from day one, you know, because we had no idea what we were doing. We bought some pretty inexpensive microphones we've upgraded. Yep. 
But the the sound quality of this little program, I think, has been quite strong from the start. It is. Right? Except for that one that uh, we recorded with the microphones turned around. That's right. <laughs> Let's not talk about yeah, that. Thanks, Mishka. Uh, thanks, Mishka. Thanks to Scott Vinzen, Ken Tamplin, these musical giants. Uh, they, they're responsible for that great uh, shredding guitar you hear throughout the episode. Yes. And, um, what great guys, and we really appreciate allowing them to use their stuff. Yeah, their yep. generosity. Yep. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, as uh, some are wont to do, you can contact Jeff at ad nauseum.com. Large your correspondence up with um, compliments yeah. and things like that. Jeff really goes for like that. that. I'm very needy. Yeah, Jeff at ad nauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Yes, and if you want to write to Dave, it's Dave at ad nauseum.com. Also, don't forget the V and load up his uh, mailbox with uh, curmudgeonly complaints because he, he loves that kind of stuff. That's too. what I go for. That's right. It's my daily diet. And Dave, how about next week? What are we doing? I think next week we're going to return to... Um, Henri René Maru. Maru, yes. Uh, part six, mm-hmm. A History of Education in Antiquity. And we're going to talk extensively about one of my favorite authors. In fact, my grad school special author, Mr. Plato. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So I, I've heard he's important in the in the. Uh, I would say so. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Dave, you have our gustatory parting shot. Yes, I do. And this comes from one Fran Lebowitz. Uh, do you know Fran? Fran, um, a New York comedy writer or something like that? Yes. I'm not, I'm yes. not all that familiar. but Right. Uh, maybe you're confusing her with uh, John Lovitz. Oh, I, I, I like confusing people with John Lovitz. <laughs> I love John Lovitz. Yes. So this is what Fran says. And uh, I, I could really sink my teeth into this quote. <laughs> She says, quote, my favorite animal is steak. <laughs> <laughs> to the point. Thanks, That's friend. Right. And thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>